Good morning and welcome. We're here this morning to hear argument in the case of Zachary Miller Appellant versus Dr. Patel, Dr. Schiltz. Am I pronouncing his name right? Is it Schiltz? Okay. I thought it was Schiltz, Schiltz but it, the name of that beer. Um, uh, ben, Dr. Copeland, Community Physicians of Indiana and Community Howard Regional Hospital doing business as Community Howard Behavioral Health Appellees. It's a civil transfer case. Transfer has been granted. Uh, counsel for the appellant, Zachary Miller, will argue first. And the counsel table representing Mr. Miller, we have uh, Mike Phelps. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. We also have Rhonda Wood. Good morning, Ms. Wood. Representing the appellees at counsel table, we have Joseph McPike. Good morning, Mr. Pike. Edna Cook. Good morning, Ms. Cook. And we also have Aaron Myers. Good morning, Ms. Myers. Council, as we have been conducting oral arguments, you'll each have approximately two minutes before we may start asking questions. Are you ready to proceed? Mr. Phelps. Madam Chief Justice, and may it please the court. There is one issue really for this court to decide on appeal that has two sub-issues underneath it. The overarching issue is whether or not the trial court erred when it granted the motion for summary judgment on behalf of the providers in this medical malpractice action. The answer to that question relies upon two sub-issues. Number one, does Indiana's general public policy preventing one from shifting his legal culpability for a crime he committed to a third party apply and preclude Miller's civil action in this case? Number two, does the doctrine of collateral estoppel preclude Miller's civil action in this case? We argue that the answer to the overall issue, did the court err, the trial court is yes. Does the public policy preclude uh, Zachary Miller's claims in this case? No. And does the doctrine of collateral estoppel bar Miller's claim in this case? Again, we argue no. We argue that heavily based upon the decision of the Indiana Court of Appeals, uh, which we understand has been vacated, giving uh, this uh, once the court grants transfer. However, we would argue that that court's decision is very well reasoned and is legally sound under Indiana law, and it does rely uh, upon Illinois Supreme Court law, which of course is not binding upon this court, but we argue uh, is persuasive. There are two cases, there's not much that the parties disagree with in the underlying dispute. Factually, there's hardly anything I think that's disagreed. The question is, does the Indiana Court of Appeals case from 1997 of Rimmert versus Mortel uh, preclude the claim in this case? Counsel, I have a question. Um, had your client in the criminal case gone to trial and asserted an insanity defense, and the jury rejected it, and instead found him guilty but mentally ill, uh, would he be able to argue insanity in this subsequent civil case under the, the doctrine of collateral estoppel? Under collateral estoppel, um, no. I Why think does it make any difference if he pled guilty? 
Yeah. To, uh, well, excuse me, that he pled guilty but mentally ill. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think guilty pleas have the same. We, we resolve 90% of our criminal cases via guilty plea. They seem to have the same uh, legal effect as a jury verdict. I, I don't think the answer to that question is as simple as yes or no, and here's why. I, I think our Court of Appeals pointed this out, as did the Supreme Court of Illinois point out in the Tallarico case, that the idea that someone pleads guilty uh, to a crime, e either the crime is charged or some lesser included charge, there are myriad reasons they may do so. One of, only one of which is they're actually guilty or culpable of that crime. And I, I think Judge Baker points it out best when he says this. He says, when we look at that situation, we've, in this case, we've got a situation where the record shows that two treating healthcare professionals had diagnosed Zachary Miller as insane at the time of his crime, one who did not. One who did not. So the question is, does Zach Miller have to fully adjudicate his criminal action to the trier of fact, i.e., in this case, it would have been to the jury, to get that determination to continue his medical malpractice claim? The problem is, is that he does that at great cost and great risk. And the risk is, in, in Zachary Miller's case, what if the jury in the underlying action believes the one doctor who says he's not insane over the two who are. Why, why does it matter if, it, if it's a great cost and great risk? Why, why does that matter to the collateral estoppel analysis? Well, I, I don't think, I, I think that's an underlying rationale as to why we shouldn't apply it in this type of case. I don't think that answers the question you're asking. Um, I, I think the question really for the collateral estoppel rule is, was it adjudicated to a trier of fact, and, and it was not. He, he admitted to certain facts for whatever reason he did, but it was never adjudicated by the trier of fact. And in fact, if you go back and you look at the Rimmert case, it's very interesting because the providers in this case want to rely heavily on Rimmert, certain parts of Rimmert, but they do ignore the very last holding of Rimmert which is also the rationale from Tallarica. Now, the interesting thing is both of those cases came down in 2017, and the similarity in the last holding in Rimmer to Tallarico is very interesting. And I think it brings up the point that, that, you're, that you're asking me about is, is that what if we have a situation where somebody, for some reason, pleads guilty to an offense, uh, but yet it has not been determined by a trier of fact as to whether they're culpable or not. What I'm struggling with is, I think, the same issue, but um, when we're looking at issues of collateral estoppel, one of the elements that we, we have to uh, examine is whether or not there was a full and fair opportunity to litigate. And, and it, it seems to me, if really for all of the reasons you've just indicated, uh, defense counsel during the criminal case looked at all of these issues and they determined, I'm going to sign up for 20 years because uh, this is a really bad case for my client, notwithstanding all of the issues that we're talking about here today. And, and that's, that's what concerns me. I, I, I know the Court of Appeals looked at the Illinois case, and it's well-reasoned. That's one way to look at it. But as I understand it, that's a minority position. And, and I'm concerned about the next case if this is opened up. Most of our cases are decided by plea agreement. So help me with that. Yeah, I, I certainly understand uh, your thought process there. Thought process uh, there. Um, the question is, though, 
did he have a full and fair opportunity to litigate the underlying issues? And I, I guess one way I always look at these, Justice Goff, is, is, is by analogy, because I think an analogy kind of lets us look at a more macro view of a situation like this. So let's assume we've got uh, someone uh, who's driving down the road and they're taking a medication and one of the side effects is it makes them pass out. And the doctor never tells them that. It tells them it's safe to take, it's safe to drive, you don't need to take any precautions. They're driving down the road, they run a red light and they hit a car, a, a, a car with a family in it and the entire family is killed in it. And the patient who, who the doctor didn't tell that they uh, shouldn't be driving with this medication is paralyzed from the neck down. Now, here's my problem with, with kind of your thought process, the way you're asking the question is this. What happens if the driver, the patient gets, uh, get, uh, get, you know, the basically charge is the same as in this one, voluntary manslaughter. And he says, I wasn't culpable of the crime. I, di I didn't knowingly or intend to do this. And we've got a prosecutor for some reason who says, we're going to charge you with this. If you go to trial, you could get up to whatever the presumptive is for manslaughter. Or, because we know of the circumstance, we, we, we will plead this down, find you guilty of something lesser, and we will give you probation. So you can plead guilty and get probation, or you can go to trial and risk going to prison for a long time. Both of those would prevent the medical malpractice claim if we applied uh, collateral estoppel under those situations. So you're saying if your choice is difficult, you don't have a full and fair opportunity? Isn't, isn't opportunity the key word in this analysis? You seem to be equating hard choices with a lack of opportunity. I guess my argument would be, Justice Massa, at some point that decision becomes such a hard decision that you really don't have a fair opportunity to, uh, to adjudicate those issues. So how does it serve efficiency uh, uh, concerns if, if we're going to allow subsequent courts to uh, sort of relitigate those issues and, and, and peek behind the curtain and, I mean, by what standard would we, would we judge full and fair opportunity? Yeah, and I, I think that's a great question, Justice Massa, but I think both, uh, both the court in Raymer and Tallarico uh, touched upon that. And what they said is, sometimes, yes, it is good for us to have bright-line rules. And I'm paraphrasing. But when we're going to talk about collateral estoppel, this is one area that it does not make sense to have a rigid bright-line rule. We have to look at the underlying circumstances of each case. Now, I, I think we could agree that in, in this case and in my hypothetical, we can agree that no trier of fact has adjudicated the issue of mental illness versus insanity. So why, why preclude, in these rare situations, a plaintiff from bringing the claim and having the trier of fact in the civil case hear the evidence and make that determination? I've got another question before you sit down. Let's say even if we would agree with your, um, the, the doctor's testimony was unsworn and we have law about that unsworn affidavits. Then I was sort of scouring the sentencing hearing to seeing if there was enough with regard to our summary judgment standard. And, and that's problematic, so I want you to address this. But there's a second thing I want you to address, too, and another way of looking at this case. When I look at the 
complaint. They're alleging damages in mental anguish, emotional suffering, loss of freedom, attorney's fees, and expenses. Is it possible to sever those damages? Um, you know, three doctors on the medical review panel found that they failed to follow the standard of quick care. And I'm, not, I'm finding it logically um, sort of inconsistent to say that everything, if he commits a crime three months, six months, 12 months later, that even those pre-crime damages, and you did, the complaint was pretty good at separating those out. The um, mental anguish, emotional suffering that's related to the alleged malpractice of the doctors. Can you still survive because the um, providers have not negated, have not um, their burden on summary judgment with regard to having a question of fact on that? Because it seems it seems to lump everything into the criminal act. It says that arising of or relating to the criminal act. I get that all the loss of freedom, attorneys' fees, expenses. That's all relating to the criminal act. But there are possibly damages based on what those what the doctors did with regard to your client's care prior to that. So two separate questions, and pick which one you want to ask. Yeah, let's talk about the severing of damages first. Um, I, I think that's a good question, and my response would basically be as simple as this. First and foremost, um, we, we have two ways for the jury to determine damages in any civil case. One is the damages instruction, the model damages instruction that we give to the court. In a medical malpractice case, it tells the jury what they can and can't award damages. But if you're wrong, I mean, if we go with the majority view and we find that, that you know, you can't really parse this out, the policy reasons that we found with regard to not being able Understood. to collaterally attack apply here, can you still win on the pre-criminal act damages that your client may or may not be able to prove? Theoretically, yes. Yes. On, on the, on the pre-criminal act damages, yes, I, I would think so. Um, I, I think it would be limited, and, and obviously most of the damages are post-criminal act, but I think you could. I think you could. Going back to the unsworn statement uh, in, uh, in, the summary, in the designation of the summary judgment motion itself, I, I would represent to the court, I wasn't involved in the drafting or filing of that, or in the drafting or filing of the appellate's brief, I would just say this. I would say that even though the providers drop a footnote in, in their, um, in their appellee's brief talking about it being an unsworn statement, they didn't allege that as error in this case on appeal, and I believe they've waived it. But if they didn't waive it, then they can prevail on that argument? I, I think it would be up for the court to decide whether or not it was hearsay. Uh, I, I, I didn't see anywhere where they asked the court to, to actually look at the evidentiary uh, decisions of motions to strike and not to. Uh, the court did, the trial court did not strike uh, the designation, and I did not see anything in, in the Appley's brief where they've asked this court, or the Court of Appeals, to do so. I have another more foundational question. You talked a lot about Rimmer, which is a 1997 Court of Appeals case. Has our court ever adopted the wrongful acts doctrine? I've not seen anything beyond Rimmert. But, 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 you, but you concede we should then, if I understand the, the briefing correctly. I mean, it seems like your premise is that we, we ought to adopt that doctrine just as the Court of Appeals did back in 1997. You don't think it precludes your claim, but you're conceding that we should embrace that as the public policy of Indiana. Yeah, I, I think the underlying public policy is a valid 
uh, public policy consideration, and, and we don't have any reason to say this court should not recognize it. I think the application of that policy in this case, given that the plaintiff I'm sorry, given that Mr. Miller did not avail himself of the opportunity to have the trier effect determine insanity versus mentally ill, that's, what, that's the exception to the policy that we think applies. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from you again on rebuttal, Mr. Phelps. Mr. McPike. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court, my name is Joe McPike, and I, along with Edna Cook and Aaron Myers, represent the Appalese, the providers in this case. We are respectfully requesting this Court to affirm the trial court's entry of summary judgment in favor of the providers. Summary judgment is appropriate in this case. Miller's killing of his grandfather um, and his subsequent action against the providers is barred under Indiana's public policy as set forth in Remert. Uh, further, the elements of collateral, defensive collateral estoppel uh, as set forth in the uh, National Wine case uh, apply to a stop, uh, to a stop the plaintiff in this case, the appellant in this case, from relitigating the issue of his criminal intent. The public policy general rule is that one cannot maintain an action if, in order to establish that cause of action, he or she must rely in whole or in part upon an illegal act to which they were a party or upon their criminal violation of the laws. And that was adopted under the Remert decision as it was recognized as the public policy of Indiana, recognized in other jurisdictions as well as the wrongful conduct rule. Remert and the cases cited in Remert uh, from Iowa and Michigan and uh, from Alaska share a common principle in that me uh, patients of mental health care providers cannot bring an action against the mental health care providers for failing to protect them from uh, committing a criminal offense if they have been convicted of that criminal Counsel, offense. Counsel, we're at the summary judgment stage, so how do you carry, um, how does your client carry the burden of demonstrating that none of Miller's alleged damages are compensable? Because the cases talk about the relating to or affected by the crime itself. Let, let's say a hypothetical, let's say the crime occurred eight months later and based on the treatment that he received that the medical review found, board found below um, the standard of care, he's homeless on the streets, he suffered additional physical ailments, and then eight months later he did um, commit a crime. Are you saying that even all those pre-criminal actions with regard to his being homeless, possibly having phys you know, physical deterioration, um, none of those would be compensable because he committed a crime eight months later? That's, that's okay. correct. Where do you get that? Because I don't see that. I, I've not seen that distinguished. And the way they pled this came uh, that um, you're saying that these damages are not compensable because of the criminal act. They've got to be the actual or relating to the criminal act. How does the fact that he was let go so many times in a severe mental condition between th the time that he had the... Um, possibly deficient doctor's care and the criminal act, why, why aren't those compensable? The 
There's no question that in the complaint uh, there were allegations of loss or damages being loss of freedom. I agree with you on loss of freedom, attorney's fees, everything related to the criminal act. But the, there's other damages alleged with regard to um, mental anguish, um, emotional suffering, in addition to the loss of freedom, attorney's fees, expenses. Yes, Your Honor, and it's our position that under the general public policy rule and under Remert, that as the action is based in whole or in part upon the criminal conduct that his cause of action is barred. Do you have any other arguments to say that, uh, that it encompasses the fact he had a criminal act later that encompasses any damages he sustained in the months prior to the criminal act? No, Your Honor. I think that our reliance is upon the general rule of public policy uh, as stated in the, in the Remert decision. What public policy is furthered by um, disallowing the complaint to go forward solely on the on the pre-crime uh, alleged damages? Well, the, the, the general public policy rule is to prevent a shifting of liability. Um, uh, to you're, not, you're not shifting liability for the murder. I mean, the, you're, the, the, the chief's question goes solely to, um, to and any damages he might have sustained um, between the malpractice and before the murder. Right, Your Honor. And I, I think the response to that is that uh, simply based upon the general rule, if it's based in whole or in part on the criminal conduct, that the uh, cause of action is barred in its entirety. Pre-crime damage is being sought here? Uh, the the uh, appellant uh, amended um, their interrogatory answers, uh, they weren't signed in compliance with trial rule 33B uh, by the, the plaintiff, but they did set forth, uh, mention that there was loss of enjoyment of life prior to the killing of the grandfather. The complaint itself says suffered damages, which it would include, you know, other than the loss of freedom and expenses, they, they allege that. So, I mean, I, I looked at the complaint to see if I thought there was enough to s sustain it, and, and I found no case law. And even looking at the split in the jurisdictions on when this applies, um, and I can think of, you know, the, the hypothetical that I had. Let's say the crime happened a year and a half after the malpractice. You're saying that n that all is uh, um, collapsed into the fact there's a criminal act later? Even though he suffered, he can show, if he can show damages, or he's alleged enough to survive summer gen. I'm not seeing any designated evidence submitted by your client on that factor that you carry the burden. Yes, Your Honor. The, the reliance is, again, on the, on the general rule of public policy and on Remert that uh, the, the action is barred and whole or in. But you know, even if we look at Remert, Remert he had a carve out, and it car, you know, it talked about listen. But we're, we want you, we want to take notice of this Illinois case that said that there may be circumstances. So Remert's not as strong as what I mean. I, I definitely see the argument that it may be illogical or logically inconsistent to permit collateral attack by way of a civil lawsuit even after a, a guilty plea. But there's also a cautionary note in Remert that said, you know, listen, there's going to be times that it's not actually litigated such as the plea that was in that case. You're referring to the Bar Baruchowitz case? Correct. Your Honor, and I think that, uh, that the, the appellant has had heavy reliance on the Baruchowitz case, and I think it is distinguishable 
uh, in large degree because even though the plaintiff, Ann Baruchowitz, was bringing an action against her mental health care provider for the murders of uh, individuals and saying that the mental health care provider should have prevented that, uh, that was analyzed in context of a motion to dismiss in which the allegations in the complaint had to be taken as true and the allegations were that she was insane at the time of the crime. That, additionally, the Baruchowitz case was not a collateral estoppel case. Uh, the collateral estoppel was not raised as a defense and discussed in the opinion. And therefore, because the allegations in the complaint had to be taken as true, Baruchowitz was able to relitigate that issue. But here, collateral estoppel has been raised as a defense, and that bars Miller from relitigating the issue. Counsel, is what you're saying about this, this carve-out, if you will, for pre-crime damage, is what you're saying that uh, there wouldn't be a lawsuit if he hadn't killed somebody? That's, yes, that's uh, in the interrogatory responses. The claim was that the providers should have hospitalized him, and if they had, he would not have killed his grandfather and he would not be incarcerated. But that's just part of the damages. He, he, he asked for an additional, there were additional damages that were pled. Yes, Your Honor. Negligent infliction of emotional distress was in the complaint. I'm talking about the, um, well, the, one, the two that I just mentioned, the um, emotional, you know, mental anguish and emotional suffering. Yes, Your Honor. And again, and, and this particular, the, the facts as alleged are that the care was uh, less than a month before the alleged uh, I understand, killing. but I'm, I'm just looking at your burden of proof and what can you show me that um, negates the sum your summary judgment obligation um, for those, for that period of time? Because we clearly have all three doctors on the panel saying there was malpractice, right? That was designated, uh, the, the panel opinion was designated. Good. That question about whether or not there would have, if there had not been a murder, there wouldn't have been a lawsuit, I, I think that really kind of hits the nail on the head with, with what I struggle with, with with your position. My friend Justice Moulter had asked whether or not we'd ever accepted this wrongful act doctrine, adopted it uh, as our court. And it, it seems to me that it could also accurately be said, uh, had there not been just a complete breakdown on the part of the system, there would not have been a murder, N notwithstanding the fact that there was perhaps, perhaps probably, uh, you know, this collateral estoppel um, in the context of the criminal case. Why should we not... Uh, say, hey, we're not going to adopt that here. It's going to go too far. There are things that we may not be able to think about or, or contemplate, and uh, th this, is, th this doesn't serve a public policy by uh, giving the system a pass when they let somebody out and they commit a murder. Yes, Your Honor. The, in, in looking at public policy, uh, criminal culpability is examined, and here there's no question that he's criminally culpable for the act. The uh, the evidence on standard of care, I feel, is irrelevant to the application of the doctrine of collateral estoppel because we look at f uh, full and fair opportunity to litigate and under the, f whether it would be otherwise unfair, under the Tofany 
uh, analysis of that with incentive to litigate and the Tallarico case that talked about incentive to litigate uh, and ability to defend and um, foreseeability of future litigation and that sort of thing. Those considerations I don't feel are uh, where, you know, the, the standard of care issues would come into play. Your position goes against the restatement of judgments, um, Section 85. Um, tell us why we that that would not be something that Indiana should adopt. Your Honor, I believe that the Cole case from Iowa looked at that particular issue. Um, I, I know I, I know that that has been looked at, and there was a comment that somebody that takes that position. Uh, you know, in, in a different uh, decision, uh, hasn't really read that closely because um, the restatement does provide uh, some language that could support uh, preclusive effect. But generally, um, I think the rationale is that uh, the more recent cases uh, apply collateral estoppel to guilty pleas because of the due process considerations of procedural safeguards that are that are considered uh, at the time of the taking of the plea. Counsel, let me go with that from a slightly different direction. I, I understood that provision of the restatement as embracing the view of a lot of other commentators that in an era of comparative fault, that comparative fault is a better tool to uh, allow jurors to analyze this sort of cult culpability issue. That in some cases um, there may be great culpability and, and the jury can, can determine that through comparative fault, or in other cases like this it might be much, diff uh, much more difficult and the jury might allocate less fault uh, to the plaintiff. Why isn't comparative fault a superior vehicle for analyzing these culpability issues rather than a blanket rule uh, adopting the wrongful acts doctrine? Yes, Your Honor. Um, in medical malpractice, uh, contributory negligence applies as opposed to comparative fault as set forth, I believe, in the Cavins case. And therefore, that analysis um, I don't think would really be entertained in, in our case. I'd like to go back to first principles for a moment. The, the, the threshold question for me here is whether or not guilty pleas are to be given preclusive effect. You're, Opposing counsel, of course, says, no, 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 there's no fair, full and fair opportunity to litigate in connection with a guilty plea. Um, it's only when there's a jury verdict that, that uh, tell, tell us why he's wrong about that in your view. Why should guilty pleas be given preclusive effect? And then we can talk about what, what gets precluded after a guilty plea. But address that threshold question, if you will. Yes, Your Honor. And in our petition, we cited some cases, uh, the Smith versus Sheehan case from the Northern District of Illinois. Uh, and the Fullerton case from the Fifth Circuit. And in both of those cases, they set forth an analysis of whether or not guilty plea should be given preclusive effect. And they recognized that the modern trend was not to require active courtroom confrontation, but instead to uh, look at the procedural requirements that are required for the taking of pleas and uh, establish that that is full and fair litigation uh, in that context of that earlier proceeding. 
Now, many federal cases have said the overwhelming trend within federal courts is to give guilty pleas preclusive effect. Guess what I don't know? Certainly the State Farm case that you referenced, for example, from the Fifth Circuit, this way. What, what do these federal cases that go your way have to say? Are they interpreting federal law, or are they sitting in diversity and interpreting what the state law might be in the particular jurisdictions where they sit? I think it's both, Your Honor. I think that the Fullerton case was looking how it should be applied under Texas law, and they, uh, the Fullerton court determined that uh, the, the Texas law would interpret it as uh, the collateral estoppel should be applied to guilty pleas. Um, it also looked at federal law and said that in federal, in federal courts, it's almost uh, a consistent um, determination to allow the preclusive effect of guilty pleas. Your Honors, I would also like to mention, because there's been some discussion, well, there's been reliance by the Court of Appeals on the Tallarico uh, decision, and I feel that there are some important considerations uh, with regard to the Tallarico case. First, Tallarico does not stand for the proposition that a guilty plea cannot be used for collateral estoppel. To the contrary, the Court in Tallarico accepted that the guilty plea was a full and final judgment on the merits. Uh, the Tallarico court further noted that to give preclusive, to, to refuse to give preclusive effect to the guilty plea should not occur absent a compelling showing of unfairness. And the Tallarico court did refuse to apply collateral estoppel in that case, finding no incentive to litigate, but it was careful to limit its application to the particular facts of that case. So what's compellingly unfair uh, about finding preclusion here? Well, I think that would, in, 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 I, I think for illustrative purposes, comparing this case to Tallarico shows that every element that weighed against applying collateral estoppel in Tallarico weighs in favor of applying it in our case. First of all, in Tallarico, uh, the defendant was charged with serious felonies, aggravated unlawful restraint, armed violence, and aggravated criminal sexual abuse with serious potential jail term. That was reduced by plea agreement to misdemeanor battery with probation instead of any executed jail time. In our case, the plea agreement, even though it was a lesser included offense, gave Miller every incentive to litigate because it was a level two felony with a, a recommendation to the court pursuant to the plea agreement of up to 25 years executed uh, in jail time. And it was open sentencing to the court. So there was definitely incentive to litigate under those circumstances. Further, in the Tallarico case, the court noted that because the the defendant was looking at misdemeanor battery and probation instead of executed jail time, there was no incentive to take it seriously, that it was trivial. In this case, clearly, the substantial jail time that the uh, defendant faced uh, made, made it uh, a very serious consideration, and his counsel mentioned during the sentencing hearing that um, it was a very thoughtful and careful decision that he made. Uh, he was not only aware of a potential lawsuit of future litigation, but he was actively pursuing it concurrently with the criminal case 
and Tallarico blamed his conduct on a drug that was prescribed to him. Miller blamed his conduct before he pled guilty upon insanity or tried to advance an insanity defense, but Tallarico did not concede that element when he pled guilty. Uh, Miller, by necessity, conceded the insanity defense when he pled guilty but mentally ill. And so every element that weighs in favor, uh, every element that weighs against applying it in Tallarico weighs in favor of uh, applying it in our case. And I see I'm almost out of time, Your Honors. And I would just note that uh, as Justice McMorrow stated in her dissent in Tallarico, to allow, to, to prevent the allowance of collateral estoppel and public policy in this case would compromise the finality of the judgment, the integrity of the guilty plea, judicial economy, and fairness to the providers in this case. And we respectfully request the court to affirm the entry of summary judgment. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Phelps. Mr. Phelps, you would agree that the insanity defense in a criminal action is an affirmative defense, correct? I'm sorry? Insanity is an affirmative defense in a criminal action. It, it would be, yes. Right. And your client in this case opted out of putting that defense forward. In the end, he, he pled to a crime that removed that as an issue, yes. The guy got 20 years based on the plea. Well, what was he subjected to getting had he not pled? I don't know what the presumptive was. Um, it was a lot higher. Right? I, I would assume that it was. And, and I think that's borne out by the, the discussion uh, when we take a look at page 13 of our Court of Appeals decision, where there's a discussion that talks about the issues that we're talking about. And it's, it's defense counsel's statement to the court in, in agreeing to the plea agreement. Um, and basically the gist of it is, and I, I know you've all read it, but the gist of it is, is that the risk of going forward is too high for exactly the reason, Justice Slaughter, that, that, that you're asking that question. So he's made a choice. Now, I know there, there have been a couple questions about, well, don't, don't we want to encourage uh, plea agreements in, in criminal cases? And, and I, I guess, yes, when somebody's guilty of something, then it's good to have that done. But I would note, I think it's really important that we look at, we're, okay, we're here almost in 2023, and this is the first time this specific set of issues has been before this court. So I think that's another reason why, and I think Chief Justice Rush, when you talked about the restatement of judgments, I, I think that's a reason why the restatement of judgments and, and the argument from uh, Tallarico is that we can't have this stringent, rigid rule because these are so factually sensitive. Most of what we're arguing about here today goes back to the, the factual sensitivity of the underlying issue. Has there been an adjudication on the issue of insanity versus mental Let's ill. Let's say we agree with that. Let's say we agree with your position. Then we're going to look at designated evidence, and there seems to be a failure um, from the, for the plaintiff to designate the evidence that they need to to, move, to survive summary judgment. Where's the evidence? You have, and I, and I, I'm, I'm going to say it's an unsworn affidavit that okay. they don't have an obligation to They won the case, even they didn't appeal the motion to strike, but they won the underlying case. So we've unsworn affidavit, and we've got some testimony of the struggles, of his struggles. Where is that to raise the insanity? It, you know, all that really was designated was, was that sentencing. 
And I don't think I can get there with the sentencing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that if you take a look at the narrative report from one of the two uh, mental health care providers, if, if you look at that and say that wasn't properly designated, then you do have to search the record. And I did, right. and I searched the record. Yeah. Tell me what, what I'm going to find, because I'm not finding that he, he might... He, you might win on one issue, but then on the designated evidence, you might not. Show me, how do I patch that together out of the testimony saying the system failed him, um, even the state acknowledged that there was, there was mental health concerns, but it... Yeah, I mean... That does not appear, we have a generous summary judgment standard in Indiana, that does not appear enough to survive the way that it was lawyered um, in this, at the summary judgment phase. Yeah, and, and unfortunately I can't answer for that. And I think that's a question that uh, you're correct on. It, if it's not properly designated, then the court can't rely upon it. What's wrong with a bright line rule, counsel, that says you plead guilty, um, you, you lose the, or, or you're found guilty by a jury, you lose the opportunity to, to prosecute a civil case after the fact. Well, I think there's a huge distinction between you plead guilty and you're found guilty, because that goes back to adju adjudication. And you conceded that in, yes. in the first question today, right? That, yeah, absolutely. Had this case gone to a jury. Absolutely. But part of the calculus of whether the plea includes, what are the, what are the implications of the plea? And my question is, what's wrong with a bright line rule that makes it clear to the next Zachary Miller, if, I'm, if I plead guilty and I, I get the benefit of the plea on the criminal side, there's a cost on the civil side. But what's wrong with that regime? I, as the Court of Appeals stated, it, that, that seems to be rigidly unfair. And, and I think it is because, again, when we go back to the restatement of the judges, when we go back to the Tallarico case, it's so factually sensitive well, but, of the... But the fairness of that rule is, you know what the consequences are, as opposed to the, the wishy-washy, fact-specific standard, I plead guilty, what does that mean? Well, I, gee, I don't know, I'm going to have to litigate it. Yeah, and I think that just pre-assumes that under this rare circumstance that Mr. Miller found himself in, that he was actually going through that cognitive thought process of, okay, I have to risk years, years, and decades in prison to continue my medical malpractice action. Thank you, counsel. Yeah, thank you. And to both counsel, thank you. Um, thank you for your briefing. Thank you for your well-argued case today. Interesting issue. We will be discussing an issue, issuing an opinion in due course. That concludes the oral argument. All right.